Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, I am extremely honored to present our guest, co-founder of the Esalen Institute, Michael Murphy. Michael's the author of a host of books, including Golf in the Kingdom, In the Zone, Jacob Adabet, and The Future of the Body. He is also a graduate of Stanford University, an accomplished meditator, a very free thinker, a fascinating storyteller, and a rather magical being all said and done. But today, the topic at hand is the origins of the Esalen Institute, Michael's vision for it, the experiences that led him to it, the circumstances that allowed for he and Richard Price, his co-founder, to convert the wild bohemian retreat of Big Sur Hot Springs to America's first growth center in 1961. The early days were heady times, and Michael crossed paths with Henry Miller, Algis Huxley, Joan Baez, Abraham Maslow, Hunter S. Thompson, Alan Watts, Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, soon to become Baba Ram Das, B.F. Skinner, Paul Tillig, and so many more. Today, he tells his tale. So please enjoy my conversation with Michael Murphy. In relation to Esalen, uh, I really should go back to when I was... uh, really um, in my early teens, and uh, I was a very religious kid. Our family was not a church-going family. My mother um, had been raised Catholic, my father Protestant, but they weren't going to church regularly. But somehow I, I became an altar boy in our Episcopal Church in Salinas, California, and about that time started to conceive the thought that maybe... I would be an Episcopalian priest. What was it that drew you to the path of the altar boy? That's a good question. Uh, It was just a primal attraction. Uh, My brother didn't go to church. Um, We were actually taken to our local Episcopalian church by my grandmother and and felt it was time. We had never been baptized. Uh, So I was 11, he was 9. Anyway, something about it just seized me. And I started going to church, and about that time, uh, the minister there, you know, was uh, replenishing the supply of altar boys and uh, asked if I'd like to do it. We were baptized. I was confirmed, and uh, it was powerfully attractive to me. At the same time, I, you know, was reading a lot and started uh, to come up with a, uh, a worldview. You know, I was a teenage philosopher, and I came up with the... Um, idea, you could call it kind of Christian, but it would be a kind of Christian mystical worldview that each of us is surprised by graces that are given. Now, I was hearing this, of course, from our minister, the kind of uh, signals of transcendence. And somehow, I got obsessed with the idea that it didn't necessarily have to come through church learning. And I developed a category of triggers. Uh, I actually thought of it in terms of emanations or uh, eruptions from within of glimpses of what we could be or or should be. And uh, for me, I mean, it's interesting because it's lasted all my life, partly through sport, but through music, through friendship, through religious ritual and whatever. It was not any highly developed thing. I, I, I read a lot as a kid. I also somehow got into my mind that um, very often our problems were the vehicles for this disclosure of the, of the more, of the spiritual, and including neuroses. And I, I'm pretty sure I was heavily influenced in that by a Jungian book by a, a woman, Esther Harding, called Psychic Energy. And the idea that behind these certain kinds of neuroses, there are uh, disclosures trying to happen. That got into my mind. Now, this is now I'm 15, 16 and all. But at the same time, I was buying into the, the role assigned to me by my family that I would be a doctor as my grandfather was, you know, the, my grandfather who bought all the land on which Esalen is based, and he'd wanted to build a spa. And as I 
approached my senior year uh, in high school, I had been reading more and more psychology, and I started to think, well, maybe I'll be a psychiatrist. This was in my mind. When I got to Stanford, uh, like a lot of 18-year-old kids with philosophical uh, inclinations, I was swept away by everything I was learning that kind of did in what I would now look upon as the super superstitious side of my Christian upbringing, you know, the Virgin Mary and, and uh, you know, the, the crucifixion, the rising from the dead, and literally that was swept away in that first year at Stanford. I was tremendously enthralled by the idea of evolution. I knew about evolution in the Darwinian sense, but uh, I was in a course in my freshman year at Stanford, and that grabbed me. Okay, so here I am now, 19, and by accident, one day, I found myself uh, in a class that had switched. Uh, it was a big class in social psychology, and professor at Stanford, uh, Frederick Spiegelberg uh, from Germany, a tremendous lecture on comparative religions, had been switched into this class. I'd heard about him. He had been to India. Everybody said it was like the movie The Razor's Edge. This is, you know, which had come out the year before with Tyrone Power and kind of the glamour of India and um, his reputation. So I decided to stay in the class. And that triggered what would lead eventually to Esalen. What about uh, Spiegelberg's uh, message made a deep impression upon you? Well, okay. From the first moment... Um, of that class. First of all, he came out, he was very commanding presence, and stood in silence for at least a minute. And believe me, he got the 600 people in that auditorium paying attention. And then, Brahman, one word, Brahman, it was electrifying. And he lectured on the fundamental truths of the Vedic hymns. This was a course in comparative religions, and he was starting with the Vedas. Uh, and this is the oldest um, scriptures that have been repeated, you know, orally in their original forms, you know, nearly 2,000 years of the Vedic hymns. And he ended the, this hour lecture with the word Atman, which is Brahman. Atman, our deepest subjectivity, the deepest eye, the eye of all eyes, within is one with Brahman, which is the reality of all, the omnipresent reality. We and the world are one. So after the thing was over, I'm walking up the fraternity road of my fraternity, and this one sentence going through my head, you're never going to be the same again, I, literally. And anyway, I stayed in the course. I dropped my other course. I stayed in it. <clears throat> and through the next three months, he took us through... Uh, all the great religions, and ended with um, an Indian philosopher, Sri Aurobindo, who had an evolutionary worldview, very much uh, like German idealism, uh, the, the idea being that the from the beginning, the divine is manifesting in the cosmic unfoldment. In the words of the German philosopher um, Schelling, <clears throat> the Deus Implicitus, the God that is implicit in all matter becomes the Deus explicitus through this long meandering evolution. Now, this is out of, right out of Fichte and Schelling and Hegel, but Sri Aurobindo was an Indian educated in England who was uh, mystically realized and a great political leader at the same time. He had, um, before Gandhi, he had been in jail and it was the, probably the first famous Indian nationalist who called for complete freedom from England. So that captured my imagination, were you that at, worldview. Were you at the time a, a political uh, being? Well, you know, uh, basically, yeah. I mean, I, you know, in high school, I'd been student body president, and then I got to Stanford, and so I was on the student Exxon, uh, you know, executive committee, so-called. I was a kind of campus hot dog, you know, <laughs> And um, so I was, I was very um, extroverted in that way, although I had these strong religious inclination. Um, so, um, and that's a good question because it did appeal to me in a way 
that the strict ascetic mysticism of much of Indian philosophy, for example, someone like Ramana Maharshi, who is a stupendous character, you get stoned just being near him. And Spiegelberg had had darshan with Ramana Maharshi before he uh, taught that course. So I got a, a hit from him of what it was like to be near Ramana Maharshi. If you get too close to these guys, you get stoned, you know. So anyway, but Ramana Maharshi's worldview didn't uh, attract me at all. And um, he had made this very clear that um, Ramana Maharshi, uh, Spiegelberg, uh, who'd had, who stayed for two weeks with Ramana Maharshi and asked him about this other great Indian teacher, Aurobindo, and he said, well, no, no, these are the shadows. You're in love with the shadows. Who asks the question, who am I? And he was a strict Vedantic, profoundly realized, tremendously magnetic. This is Ramana Maharshi. But Aurobindo captured my imagination with this integral worldview that the, all the cosmos, all of living history is the adventure of this huge potential awakening in us. And that led me straight to the vision that impelled us to start Esalen. Uh, that's the vision uh, that, that's the reason we started it, is to dramatize this worldview and what it applied for how we live and what transformative practices would facilitate this emergence. Uh, Arbindu himself, uh, 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 integral yoga, body, mind, heart, and soul, and, and this has been central to Esalen, both the, the vision and the practice. So that um, imprint from that very first class, and then it unfolded, and you know, I went to India eventually, and. Um, Lived at that ashram, but and then when we started Esalen, I was by that time I was thirty years old, yes. and uh, so it was a bit a bit of a journey to go from your Stanford days to the ashram. That's right. Yeah, that was a ten year, eleven years. Was it was it a painful ten years? No, I mean it was for me. Uh, in it was uh, in certain ways the most exciting period of my life because I. Uh, meditation came naturally to me, and I was sitting six, eight hours a day. Uh, now, during this period, I graduated from Stanford. I dropped out. Now, it culminated. Eventually, this fire that got lit in that course um, culminated in me taking vows that this is what I was going to do. Uh, that was in my junior year. It, it hit me with tremendous force on a particular night when I essentially took vows that this is what I was going to give my life to, actualizing this vision and these practices. But I needed to start burning bridges immediately. And so that night I walked straight to the, my fraternity and quit the fraternity. A few weeks later I quit my pre-med, but I stayed at Stanford and did directed reading, uh, which was a good deal then, with Spiegelberg and others. So I, I, I got to spend two years reading and meditating. I tell you, it was fantastic. And then uh, I went into the army. It was the Korean War, assigned to um, Puerto Rico, where I fought in the Great War of the Mosquitoes. <laughs> and, but we had a what a gig. We, um, you know, we work about an hour a day. Um, we were nine psychologists who were supposed to. We were interviewing these young Puerto Rican kids who had failed their entrance exam, their entrance tests into the army because the draft was going there in Puerto Rico and uh, to see if anyone was malingering. And I think in the one year and a half, I found one person who might have been malingering, but in actuality, all of these young 18-year-old Puerto Rican guys wanted to get into the army, and they had failed the test because their English wasn't good enough. Um, but in any case, we, you know, we got to read all day. It was reading and sports and, uh, and meditation. Then after that, uh, that, I then thought, well, uh, if I go to work, eventually I could be a, a professor. And so I started in, in philosophy at Stanford. In, and after two quarters, I realized this was not for me. Analytic philosophy had uh, staged a coup d'etat at Stanford as it was all across Europe, America, particularly. Uh, war was being declared on the mystics and the metaphysicians. So I ended up going to India and spending a year and a half at the Aurobindo Ashram where I really was able to anchor my practice and say forevermore, 
this is what I'm going to do and find one way or another how to dramatize this. Um, Houston Smith, you know, the, the, the well-known philosopher of religion and um, claims, he, he met me there. I was by this time 25, 26. He claims that I had told him then about my ideas about starting this center. I actually don't remember that. When I did get back, I did ask uh, with a, another friend, my grandmother, who was now owned all this property down here in Big Sur, whether we could create this center. And she said uh, no, and later confided in my father, who, who was a lawyer, we can never give it to Michael because he will give it immediately to the Hindus. Can you paint a picture of what the Big Sur Hot Springs was in the well, in late 50s, days, early 60s? Yeah, well, <laughs> so a year or two after that, uh, uh, my friend uh, Dick Price, who had been a classmate at Stanford and shared these interests and had been through his own journey uh, into, the, into the interests and concerns and realizations upon which my whole vision uh, and practice was based. So we came down to this property, which had been a in the family since 1910, with my grandfather's hopes that it would become it turned into a spa. But um, then the war came, and the whole highway light at night was shut down, and the whole thing was shut down. And right after the war, my grandfather died. Now. Coming forward now to 1961, my grandmother didn't know what was going on, but she had hired to run the place uh, one of her many um, or several minions because she had um, made money buying uh, ranches and buying lots on Main Street, and she was quite a business person. And the, um, the, the lady who she had run this broken-down old facility here on which they had started to create this spa before the war and they were a Pentecostal church sect speaking in tongues and uh, uh, there was a lot of whooping and hollering uh, in the main lodge on uh, various nights but at the same time uh, it was a quite a bohemian gathering place Henry Miller uh, and friends from Europe Anias Nin and uh, Lawrence Durrell and uh, others would be down here and then Joan, Joan Baez was living here. She was 19. She wasn't well known. The stories have been much described. The place got out of control. and But she hired as, as a caretaker Hunter Thompson of Fear and Loathing fame. Later, he hadn't written any books yet, but he had an arsenal of weapons, uh, including a lot of automatic weapons. Anyway, one night, uh, a lot of people he offended tried to um, kill him. And so... <laughs> We uh, told my grandmother, and my father then persuaded her that uh, we had better, um, he explained to her, let Michael take it over for his dream, or we're all going to go to jail. I mean, <laughs> the place was really out of control, and it was, it was the Wild West. And so this, in this tumultuous scene, out of this uh, came an opportunity to get started. So we took the place over, and through a consequent... A uh, series of adventures because we had to um, down here on the Big Sur coast in those years, you didn't have any um, sheriffs. Possibly the sheriff in Monterey didn't send his men down this far into that. He called it that bad land down in Big Sur. So we uh, had to take control of this property, and <clears throat> it took us about a year uh, to get it in working order. And did you have to uh, tell certain groups of people they weren't welcome here? Yeah, well, they, uh, they, um, there were a lot of um, the Big Sur Mountain Men, they, that was the name, grow, growing uh, marijuana, but a lot of them were Marxists and didn't believe in private property. So we were being accosted by people saying, you Murphys, you think you own that property? No, the people own it. And uh, so um, this is when the sheriff told us, you know, you boys, he was a guy from downside, he said, you boys have to have guns because I'm not sending my men down there. You've got to take control of that property. It was that wild. So we literally had to take control of the property and create a little business, and then we started inviting the, the, the people who informed our uh, and amplified our vision. Right. So, for example, Aldous Huxley was very important in the early days, and he, from him... We got the, the conceptual framing of the human potential, 
human potentialities. He was writing about this. Our idea was that this was going to be a meeting place to open up a conversation for the wide world about the human potential in its further reaches. So Abraham Maslow's thinking and writings were very important. The beginnings were charged with synchronicities and amazing coincidences and confirmed uh, my sense, this religious sense, that um, we were doing the right thing. For example, Maslow himself drove into the property two weeks after I had bought 12 copies of his book, Tortoise Psychology of Being, which came out in the summer of 1962. And this was a bridge, like Huxley's thinking, from the very dramatic kind of worldview of Shirabindo, which, you know, the, the, the cosmic unfoldment and, you know, the language of high philosophy and uh, framed in terms of Indian philosophy, which at that point were not widely known as they are today. Uh, we're talking now 60, 1962, but Abraham Maslow was talking in uh, more mainstream terms about the psychology of self-actualization, peak experiences, and so forth. Well, he drove into this place on one um, dark night, which he later said, uh, thinking about it then, it kind of uh, resembled the Bates Motel in Psycho. Uh, it was a dark, misty night. He drives into this spooky-looking place and finds everybody reading his book. I wasn't there, but... Um, Anyway, he said this was just a tremendous coincidence, and a lot of that started to happen. We raised a flag, and people flocked around. And the idea was um, to uh, run seminars uh, led by the, uh, uh, thought leaders, such as Huxley and Maslow, and eventually Paul Tillich, who you know was espousing a similar doctrine of um, uh, a new way to look at Christianity, kind of evolutionary panentheism. First time I ever saw that phrase. I, I use it to characterize the line of thought that's behind Esalen, evolutionary panentheism, the doctrine that the divine is uh, both imminent and transcendent. Pantheism being the belief that it's imminent, theism that it's transcendent, but panentheism, this is a technical term, you could call it, from... Uh, theology, um, Christian theology, uh, or any uh, any theology, um, that the divine is so. The um, here's Paul Tillich, and I, we could go on and on. But the the early speaker, Alan Watts, was uh, uh, I had met Alan actually when through Spiegelberg at Stanford when I was just twenty, and had known him for ten years. So he was one of our first influences. Uh, uh, dozens of these seminars. How would, you, how would you characterize Alan Watts's offering? What I don't, I'm not super familiar with. What it's a psychedelic blend of. Well, he before the psychedelics, before he ever uh, had a psychedelic trip, he became famous as a popularizer in the West of uh, Buddhism and Taoism, in particular, and he was immensely articulate, uh, a, a, a fantastic uh, lecturer. Uh, and a popularizing scholar. And uh, most, I think, historians of religion would give him, along with D.T. Suzuki, as the principal popularizer, certainly starting in the late 40s through the 50s and, well, through the 60s. And so here he was. He'd been leading seminars here on the property before we started Esalen. Yeah, yeah he had led a couple, and he'd even, he even tried to buy the big family house down there on the property, we now conduct these seminars, and he he actually wanted to buy that at one point before we started Esalen. So he was one, and then of course very early uh, at Esalen, 1963, our second year, Fred, Fritz Pruls came. He moved down there. He lived. He made Gestalt therapy famous at Esalen. Yeah. He had invented it with um, Paul Goodman, uh, well years earlier, but um, it became well known there, and he brought Ida Rolf. You know, Rolfing and Charlotte Selver came. So in the first two or three years, you could say we dramatized. It's like we staked out the perimeter of our thought. You kind of um, 
it's going to cover these domains. And did you have this in mind uh, as a founding vision before these people came up that I want to have a Rolfing person to cover the no. somatic base? No, that's a uh, no. Uh, what we had is the, in other words, we had I, I, I developed the program. Dick was running the place. We were together, shoulder to shoulder in this thing, but we divided the. So these ideas though were coming in from all sources. It's like having a giant. You can think of it, a big coloring book, that but you have to color it in. We had the contours basically, a certain principles that we had at the beginning, and I'd had it. Uh, for years, the idea of opening up a conversation, an exploration, not a cult. Because um, just circling back briefly, um, at Stanford, there was a little group formed uh, that developed into a little mini cult. So I got my first vaccination against cult. And then at the Arbindo Ashram, was so good for me uh, and so central to my inspiration, yet... It had elements of cult, so I got a second huge vaccination. So I came into this vaccinated against cult, which I hated, and uh, how easily this starts to develop. Now, that's at the level of, say, group formation, social formation, but then at the intellectual level, these fundamentalisms, and there are lower and higher fundamentalisms, they're kind of stupid fundamentalisms. Uh, and then there's these very elegant, higher fundamentalisms. Um, and both Dick and I, were the, we were against that, and uh, including the fundamentalisms in psychology. And this is <clears throat> where we made common cause with people like uh, Abe Maslow, who was uh, founding humanistic psychology, third force, they called it, as opposed to uh, behaviorism and to the you know very strict Freudian right. reductionism. So you had this new thing that Abe Maslow, Carl Rogers, Rollo May, others, uh, and they uh, the founded Abe Maslow and Tony Sudich, his uh, great partner in these things, uh, started the Humanistic Psychology Association in 1961 the same year we pushed the go button here. Our programs didn't start till 62, but we had, in 61, after all the tumult of getting this thing started, uh, they were starting humanistic psychology. So um, uh, this all kind of erupted at once, but again, back to these dogmas and fundamentalisms, we didn't want that, so we said no one's gonna capture the flag. That was, you know, the kids, uh, game, you know, capture the flag. No one's going to capture the flag. We were going to explore um, the vision of this greater human nature that's trying to emerge in the human race yes. and the practices to midwife it. So we, and then we used to use this phrase a lot that we're in the midwifing business to midwife this, this emergence. Now, uh, but we had those principles in place and the idea of the integral was for me fundamental because I'd gotten that through our bend of body, mind, heart, and soul. But uh, Dick also, the idea that the flesh itself is meant to incarnate the glories of, of God. It wasn't an ascetic philosophy. And you have a background in, in sport. I'd always loved sports. I mean, uh, and been very privileged all the uh, teams I got to watch. My father used to take us to Sanford football games when the T formation, you know, which the the basic pro offense was first developed at Stanford in 1940, and Clark Shaughnessy then took it to the NFL. But I got to see that whole season. I was just 10 years old, et cetera. I, I, uh, you taught so, basketball at the Orbindo Ashram, is that right? Uh, yes, I, yes, I was on the basketball team at the Shira Orbindo Ashram, and I introduced softball to the ashram, and I taught swimming. And, and Orbindo's ashram celebrated sport as a core to their yoga. So I got the seeds planted in me because the books I've written about this and the following I do have uh, uh, among a lot of sports psychologists now who read, uh, first of all, my book, Off in the Kingdom, but my other books, all of that was in place when we started here. So the idea wasn't just meditation and spiritual deliverance. It was also intellectual inquiry. It was the emotional work and the psychotherapy, perhaps, if you needed it, but emotional literacy, 
yes. emotional intelligence, and physical transformation. So somatics, what has come to be called somatics, in the early days it was, you know, Rolfing and Feldenkrais and sensory awareness and all these things gathered here. And meanwhile, Aldous Huxley describing a program of this kind of thing in his last essays before he died. Uh, he died in 1963. So these basic uh, conceptual sets were in place when we started. But the players, we didn't know. So we it just flowered. One person led to another. Fritz Perls heard about it. He came. He brought Ida Rolf. Moshe Feldenkrais was in Tel Aviv. He did his first training at Esalen. He heard, you know, he heard about this. Charlotte Selfer came to us through Alan Watts. Uh, and et cetera. Yes, we gathered momentum. Yes, we gathered momentum. You know, birds of a feather flocked together, and we became a great rallying place. We And then other people tried to imitate our structure. When would you say it really clicked in for the for Esalen? What clicked in? What do you mean? When would you say that you gathered enough momentum that you felt, wow, this place is really, it's really happening for us. This is This is becoming the place that I'd envisioned. Well, that was right off the bat. I, 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 honest to God, I mean, well, everything broke our way. It just immediately, uh, because Maslow driving in before we'd had any program starting. I mean, when you get a couple, of, I started a journal of coincidences, and I was just keep watching this. It, it, it was a, it, it's, it was an idea whose time had come. You know, there's uh, a tide in the affairs of men and women, which if taken at the flood leads on to fortune. I mean, it was like that. So we had an immediate momentum. Like our first catalog, we had four seminars scheduled. We just, a very simple little place here with a, st- a staff of eight of us or whatever, and this old broken down motel that the remnants of what my grandfather had started to build before, um, uh, before Pearl Harbor, it was pretty broken down 20 years later, so we started a, a long course of re, a rebuilding this place and developing it. Those first four seminars were so uh, oversubscribed that we scheduled immediately two more. So the next brochure was instead of one a month, it was one, uh, one a week, and then within a year it was going every single day. Now we do uh, 10 seminars a week. We do 500 seminars a year. But I think uh, we should say right now that the other thing that was happening was not only seminars that would be open to the public, but inquiries and fellowships by invitation only to go after particular issues. And those actually started as early as 1963. And in our case, it was getting people together to go after particular uh, issues related to the idea of uh, the human potential, and uh, as we said, both personal and social. What were some of the, what were some of the early subjects? Well, the, the first one I can uh, remember that um, uh, got a lot of firepower of uh, celebrities together was on, if you can believe this, in 1963 on Chinese American relations. But the um, first one that was right in the mainstream of the human potential was. Uh, in 19, at the end of 63, co-sponsored with the University of California Extension Program. And that attracted Fritz Perls, uh, Charlotte Selver, sensory awareness, uh, Gene Sagan, uh, Carl Sagan's first cousin, a truly pioneering and a real wild man psychologist, and um, a number of people who were celebrities right then emerging in this vision coming up over the horizon of the human potential some of them affiliated with the humanistic psychology, some of them not. We were not limited to humanistic psychology, although Abe Mazza was central for us. Abe actually told his daughters that I was the son he never had. We were very, we got close. And I used to stay with uh, him and his wife Bertha back in Boston, uh, Auburndale they lived in, and when I'd go back east. And um, the people we gathered, it was a broader orbit. And for one thing, we were not limited to psychology. We were getting uh, religious scholars and popularizers like Alan Watts. We were getting meditation teachers, uh, scientists. Linus Pauling lived here, so he was here. He was at that first uh, China conference. Uh, You know, he won a couple of Nobel Prizes. He um, had a very humanistic bent and a, a vision like this. 
I could go on and on, but there were, by 1965, there were some hundreds of these people in orbit around us. We had a very fast takeoff. Yeah. Now, in this orbit, were people taking the seminars, were they in shirt and necktie, or were they of the hippie? That's a good question. We, uh, I'll never forget the um, uh, Arnold Toynbee lectured here. That was, that was actually, um, that was in the fall of 62. So he um, lectured, and most of the people there were wearing neckties uh, over uh, at the lodge. And afterwards, my parents had a reception where people were dressed in sport jackets and from Monterey and all in very swell crowd, you know, all dressed up. At the same time, when we moved over there, Allen Ginsberg was at the lodge and there were guys with feathers and, hand, and uh, you know, semi-nude and uh, some of them stoned. And he was reading from Howell and all of this kind of stuff. So they were going out at the same time. So that was a kind of marker of what was to be with people... <laughs> <laughs> in dress from neckties to half naked. Now, was part of your power that you were able to mix and mingle with both crowds? Well, yeah. I mean, we did right from the beginning. The gift of Esalen and the genius of Esalen, I would say, is how wildly divergent the uh, crowd is around here. Now, we and now you got to remember, in the early 60s, what we think of as the 60s hadn't quite started yet. There were, uh, we had the remnants of the whole beat generation, Jack Kerouac had written a book, Big Sur, that describes the Vaz, um, Allen Ginsberg, uh, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, City Lights books in uh, San Francisco. He had a cabin here in Big Sur. And David Meltzer, the poet. Um, I mean, many, many of the people in the kind of the core of the San Francisco Renaissance, the beat generation, uh, had been frequenting this place. He part of this whole bohemian community. So in the early years, of Esalen. The first couple of years we had these poetry readings quite a bit. So you had that, but it was um, not what we think of as hippies yet. That really didn't explode onto the scene. Really, you could date it, some people would, from the um, free speech movement in 64. Uh, actually, Tim Leary and um, uh, Dick Alpert then, who became Ram Dass, they were here at Esalen doing I Took LSD with the, them. And that was 64, and drove uh, Dick Alpert back up to um, Berkeley, where he and Tim lectured to an audience of 10,000 over on that Berkeley campus. And the next week, uh, Mark, uh, you know, Mario Savio had the free speech movement started. But by 67, the summer of love in San Francisco, the, the Big Sur was swarming with thousands of kids uh, stoned and starting fires and... Uh, it was wild. Uh, but in the earliest years, for us, 62 to 65, it was a very different, a, a quieter scene, more intellectually oriented, but the dials were set. And you could argue that in the late 60s, it, was, it, it boiled over. It's like a pot that boiled over. Yeah. And then we had to start learning quickly what didn't work and getting some more law and order in the early 70s. Uh, but that's kind of a quick description of the arc of, uh, of, of the thing. But, uh, but anyway, that process of discovery has continued to this day of talented people who are emerging in this whole world, Aldous Huxley called the nonverbal humanities, uh, this wider, a wider embrace of the various ways of growth the transformative practices that are now proliferating around the world. Was there something in the United States akin to a growth center? No. I mean, we were the first one that you could call a growth center as it came. And then we were widely imitated. Uh, by 1969, uh, there were about 100. And they, we were the a template. And people always, in those years, you know, there was a big anti-war movement going. And they would say, look, we're the, uh, we're the Viet Cong here. You're Hanoi. And later, it became, you're the Vatican, you know. But it was, we've always been looked to for kind of a leadership, and we were the first one of that kind. There were seminar centers, you know, and there were retreat centers, but the particular gestalt, the grand gestalt, the, in German, the, uh, you know, gestalt and de Bewusstsein, the Hegelian sense, this big cultural gestalt, which we helped uh, 
I would argue, uh, <clears throat> I think most cultural historians would agree, would give birth to. But you had to see it in one place uh, to start saying, wow, these things belong together. Because that, that was our, the primal act of Eslin. Yes. This is all together now. Yes. Now we're explorers. But body, mind, heart, and soul. You know, these somatic practices with these emotional, emotional education uh, and uh, intellectual inquiry and spiritual practice all in one package. So I've, I've been reading uh, Walter Truett Anderson's book, uh, The Upstart Spring, which, which describes the first 20 years of the Esalen Institute. And in it, he, uh, he writes that you attended many, many of the early workshops. Is that right? Yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I would introduce them all. And so uh, until uh, 1966, I went to all of them. I would never recommend this to any other human should have to do such a thing. I mean, it's a miracle I survived that thing. I mean, you know, encounter groups, oh my God. And, you know, some of it was, you know, we would, anyway, yes, I went to, uh, I, I missed a, a few, but I would say 90% of them, they, see, we were doing one at a time then, so two a week uh, for those first few years. I, I, I probably went to the most, uh, nearly all, the first 200. Did you notice a great personal change in you from having taken part in, in being in the Esalen Institute for years and years? Well, I would say, though, I was so anchored in meditation practice by the time it started. By then I'd had 11, 12 years of sitting all the time. The Arbindo practice did involve a real thing on the physical fitness. So I'd always been, you know, always sports. So there was always the physical and the meditative part. I never, um, you know, I had never been psychoanalyzed. I hadn't done any prolonged psychotherapy, but, you know, I had read so much and there was so much conversation about all this stuff that, in effect, I got a second-hand psychoanalysis by hanging out with so many people who are into these things uh, as they started. So that the practices themselves, for the most part, did not have a heavy transformative change in me. And for whatever reasons, psychedelic drugs just uh, have not been my ally. I had eight trips. Um, um, the first LSD trip uh, was Laura Huxley, Aldous's wife, and Aldous had these. This was in 1962. And Dick Alpert, who became I'm <clears throat> gay, and Tim Leary. I had LSD with him in '64. So we had the best. And uh, all of them um, launched me into these spaces, but they weren't as deep as satisfying and as liberating as my deepest meditation practices. Meditation really came to me fast, and when you sat as much as I did, you don't have to be a some sort of spiritual genius to have the results. Just by the law of averages, if you're sitting eight hours a day, you're going to have some extraordinary disclosures. And I had, and uh, they were never equaled for me by the psychedelics. Now, at the same time, we were doing seminars here on psychedelics, and I was seeing the impact it had on people. So there's no doubt, if it, if they're done the right way, they are can be hugely door opening, uh, liberating, but they are not the vehicle for permanent practice. So if someone like came around like Tim Leary did, said we have LSD every Sunday. That's the way to enlightenment. People would go, boo. I mean, it doesn't work. But as an initiatory thing, it was working. But it, it didn't for me. It didn't for me. So I, um, my practice has evolved more along the lines it was already on uh, through uh, first Arabindo and then <clears throat> Arabindo supplemented by various others along the way. But uh, what I did see was how powerful these various practices are for all sorts of people. And that's been one of the good things we've done here is to help send these forth out into the world. Yes. What about philosophically or intellectually? There was, it seems that you derived a great deal of pleasure from curating the, the thinkers and speakers who came here. There was uh, another section in, in Anderson's book where he says, if Satan himself had come down the hill, Mike Murphy would have offered him to lead a, a program. Yeah, um, yeah, we, I was... Uh, Roundly criticized, often by my very best friends. You've gone too far this time, Murphy. And um, the, George Leonard and uh, Stuart Miller, who worked for us, did a skit. Uh, they uh, later played it for me where um, 
Satan came uh, and sold me an apricot orchard in Fresno. I fell in love with this, fell in love with him, and invited him to lead a seminar test on how to grow apricots. But uh, that aside, uh, uh, what they were making fun of is that um, you know we did cast our net wide, but we had to use editorial control. And right from the beginning, we saw that. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a human failing. It's a particularly American failing. If something's good, you get more. And uh, if that is, uh, doesn't quite work, then you have to have much more. So, for example, um, by 63, there was a Chinese-American guy who had something called psychic karate. And in those days, these workshops would be um, right next to the dining room in the big early Huxley Hall, right? And... Um, and these would, they would last forever, and so people would be late for meals, but you would hear these blood-curdling screams. And on this first big weekend of psychic karate, out came a person crawling and looked awful, and in come two people and dragged that person back into the meeting hall by his feet, and the wailing and going on. And anyway, to make a long story short, we never asked this guy back again. But... I got um, letters from every single member of that course saying, Murphy, it turns out you're a gutless wonder. Here is his great work. You invite him, and now you don't ask him back. So I wrote back to everybody, just the simple letter, I appreciate your remarks, but it's just ruining our meals. We can't do this anymore. <laughs> Period. <laughs> it was just too much. And this happened every now and then. So we had to, so we were learning and I, I like to think of us as a learning organization, and that, um, and it would be like uh, universities sometimes are, where uh, professors don't get tenure if they just aren't doing, can't teach, and they're not doing basic research or whatever. So, um, but yes, we did, we did invite all sorts of folks, and we learned by doing, and that's where uh, Walter got that um, that remark. You know, I'm asked uh, in sessions like this often, you know, what are your successes, what are your failures? Okay, uh, and my very brief response is, um, first, on the successes uh, side, first, that you can have a place like Esalen where this exploration is opened up, uh, and it brings together different disciplines uh, in the broad rubrics, you know, science and religion, but, you know, all the different disciplines and different religious streams, you can explore that way. Uh, and you can ex go into uh, areas that the um, leaders can't at their, at their own institutions. I mean, we have people from all the elite schools, whether it's Harvard or Princeton or Stanford or MIT or Caltech, they're coming here all the time, really, uh, to do things that they're not going to do back home. So we showed you can do that, and that has been very catalytic in many, many ways. The second thing is that we have been the main uh, generative center for somatics. These are the, I like to think of it as a great hatha yoga of the Western world, you could say, the, the invention of these approaches, sensory awareness, Rolfing the Feldenkrais method, uh, Emily Conrad, you know, and all her great work, you know, the five rhythms, the uh, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen's, where, I mean, we could go on and on and on. And to bring them under a single purview, uh, Don Johnson has been the leading philosopher, thinker about the field as a whole. Uh, he got the term, we got the term somatics from Tom Hanna, another philosopher who had a journal somatics. But anyway, to, to promote that, to foster that, to midwife uh, that, and then to, uh, the, to bring together the different um, meditative approaches into dialogue. Because, you know, within Buddhism itself, let's say the Theravada Buddhism, such as Jack Kornfeld's up at Spirit Rock, the Zen traditions, the Tibetan traditions, and uh, the dialogues between uh, those, and then between the religions themselves, the ways and means of personal growth. 
the nonverbal humanities, we, that has, we've been very generative. And the third great success are the individual transformations. I mean, we, you know, we get an endless stream of thank yous. I mean, just a place for people to find new depths and new uh, behaviors and new ways of being and new insights here. It's just, you know, that's, it's so rewarding. So those are the successes. Failure. If you asked me then why we were starting, I typically would said to give birth to a new vision of the human possibility and this earth and why we're here healthy. You know, in that respect, I would say we have not succeeded because the world does not have such a thundering elite of people as we did back then with people like Tillich, uh, one of America's uh, most famous Protestant theologians, saying these things in the way he wasn't calling for the the meeting of East and West and etc. Abraham Maslow's uh, brokering this new kind of psychology. Aldous Huxley, you know, world famous writer, uh, born of British intellectual royalty, uh, outlining this program for the nonverbal humanities, and et cetera, et cetera. That was in the air back then. In a way, it's not now. So this is a work still in progress. It's where my heart is very much in still fostering a worldview that would enlist the be our best angels for the human race. And, you know, we didn't have anything like ISIS back then. We didn't have these uh, highly aggressive fundamentalisms that are out to destroy one another. We didn't have this loss of, in the academy, of grand narratives. Now, this is out of fashion. The whole way of seeing the world whole has gone out of fashion. So I would argue in that uh, we have failed. Um, uh, but it's a work in progress. So, I, you know, we could go on and on, but there, are, there have been successes and failures, but Esalen is in the best shape it's ever been. Um, it's thriving, uh, and the um, basic mission is alive and well. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. We're sure to talk with you again. This has been a, a, a great first chapter of the Esalen's history and its origin story. Thank you so much, Michael Murphy, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our theme music today is performed by Esalen's own Daniel Niprath. You can find more episodes of Voices of Esalen by going to our website, esalen.org, that's E-S-A-L-E-N.org, or heading over to iTunes. We are honored to have you amongst our listeners. Please tune in regularly. There's so much more to come.